Welcome to episode 584. This is your host, Dr. Cindra Kampoff, and thank you so much for joining me here today on the High Performance Mindset Podcast. I am grateful that you're here. And today I have an incredible episode with Dr. Chris Massagno about the science and application of choking under pressure. You're going to learn specific tools you can use, research-backed tools that you can use to reduce your chances of choking under pressure and how you can be clutch in pressure moments instead. Now, let me tell you about Dr. Chris Massagno. He is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia. With over 20 years of research expertise in anxiety, attention, and concentration skills, Dr. Chris has successfully developed theory-matched interventions to improve performance for choking susceptible athletes and people. He is an internationally recognized research scholar with over 60 research articles and book chapters. He's also a fellow of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, which recognizes significant contributions to the field of sports psychology. In this episode, Chris and I talk about, number one, the three components of choking. We talk about how choking is linked to mental health issues. The difference between choking and being clutch in moments that really matter. What makes you susceptible to choking? And practical research-backed tools to reduce choking. To see the full show notes of this episode, you can head over to syndracampoff.com slash 584 for episode 584. All right. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Let's welcome Chris. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chris Massagno. Thank you so much for joining here, uh, us here on the High Performance Mindset. I'm pumped today to talk to you about all your research. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been following along with you for, for a while, so it's really fun to have you on, on the podcast. And maybe just to kind of give us a little bit about your passion and what you do, just start us off with that. Yeah, so uh, so what I do is uh, at the moment I'm at Victoria University and I'm a, a senior lecturer uh, here at Victoria University in Australia. Um, as you might have uh, might might be able to tell, I'm not necessarily Australian, but I am an Australian citizen now. Uh, I went to the University of Florida and studied under Chris Janelle um, at the University of Florida and did my psychology. Uh, bachelor's and also a master's degree there at the University of Florida. So my passion is in sport and exercise psychology. And I first got started when, uh, you know, I, uh, I did a sports psychology class under Christian L and then continued on from there. So um, and the, the really big thing, the area of research that I'm focused on is these, the uh, anxiety in sports uh, and also choking under pressure and what happens when people actually can't perform well under the high pressures of sport in that context. So that's really my passion along with other exercise psychology related um, research domains. And that's what I'm most excited to talk to you about today is your research about choking and anxiety. And we're going to talk about it today related to sport, but also high pressure moments in business or other performing avenues or domains such as like performing arts and things like that. Because, you know, the thing is that, Chris, we all experience pressure and 
um, there are times where one particular time I remember feeling like I choked, you know, and so I would like to avoid that in the future. Um, and I know everyone, you know, experiences high pressure moments if they're really going after their big goals. So what got you started, you know, studying choking and anxiety? Let's just kind of share with that story with everyone. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite interested in, uh, in the anxiety side of things. I, I used to be, or I, I was, uh, a co collegiate athlete. Um, I actually did 10 pin bowling when I was, uh, in college. Uh, and previous to that, uh, I was a 10 pin bowler, uh, in the state of Florida as well. And, and for your listeners, uh, I'm actually yes. a Florida, uh, Florida State Youth, um, Hall of Famer. Uh, nice. Yeah, it's just something that I just kind of uh, uh, did as well. So that was quite um, uh, quite nice to be recognized back in. Uh, well, we won't say the year. We'll we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, and uh, so so yeah, that that's I got started uh, in in this passion because I was a tendon bowler, and and from what you know, if you know anything about golf or tendon bowling, it's much more than just throwing the ball down the lane or hitting a golf mm -hmm. ball in, in golf. It's about the mm -hmm. mental side of things. And um, so I, uh, I got involved because I had some liver once in a while, I had some issues with uh, anxiety in sports in the, in the 10 pin bowling scenario and uh, very interested in how to deal with that. And uh, yeah, overcame it by doing more research in the, in the mental game. Yeah, that's how I got involved in sport and performance psychology as well as, you know, trying to figure out myself and, you know, how could I continue to be my best? Because I felt like there was times where I definitely got in my own way as a college athlete. So we have a similar, and, similar story there. Well, they say, uh, you know, it's not research, it's me search, right? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. See, seeing, uh, trying to figure yourself out in some respects. Yes, I'm still doing a lot of me, me search, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm talking exactly. to you for me search. So there you go. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Let's define choking for everyone who might not really know what it means from a conceptual and research standpoint. Yeah, so choking uh, generally is an increase in anxiety. Uh, mm -hmm. And that leads to a de decrease in performance. And most of the time, most researcher researchers would agree that there are a few elements that are involved in uh, choking specifically. One is that there has to be an increase in anxiety. So if there's no pressure on you, it can't be choking, irrespective of whether you're uh, whether you're good at what you do or you're just a novice. It, it can't be choking. The second one has to be skilled performance. So uh, okay. there's a debate in the literature at the moment that novices can't choke or or may not choke. Well, the bottom line there is that if novices have too much variability in their performance, it's very difficult to determine whether it is a choking experience or not. So that's the, okay. the second element. And the third element, uh, for, for the most part, there's probably four, but uh, uh, in the, the third element is, is largely a decrease in performance. Now, when we're talking about that, there's, there's a debate in the literature at the moment as well that decrease it has to be a considerable decrease in performance not just a okay. oh i missed a shot here or there or whatever because okay. um there's a thing called underperformance where you know some athletes say well i just uh, it was a bad bad luck or you know wasn't a good shot in that context it wasn't about anxiety or anything like that so uh, that's the that's the other thing and then denise hill might say that uh you know 
debilitative anxiety, the anxiety that you're experiences, uh, experiencing, uh, you need to feel like it's bad for you. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, again, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But generally, those three elements, besides the debilitative anxiety um, elements, those three elements need to be involved to, to be a choking experience. Chris, one thing that I'm thinking about is, you know, even as as practitioners in performance psychology, we don't really know what's going on with somebody in their own head. And so sometimes the the media might say, well, you know, this this NFL kicker choked because, mm -hmm. you know, they usually um, make this field goal. But, you know, one second left in the game, they missed it, they choked. And we don't necessarily know if they choked because we don't know if they had debilitating anxiety and they don't read you know so how would you how do you define that like when is it just you know a mistake versus if we choked how do we know that for our own self and maybe as we're watching other people perform yeah well for for your own self you probably have to to self-reflect uh yes what was i feeling anxious was i feeling anxiety um mm -hmm. did i perform below my normal standards um, yes. in that okay. context. So if you feel like those two things, if there was an increase in anxiety when you were performing and you probably could have made that shot in practice or whatever, or um, could have performed, you know, in a, in a public speaking role um, a little bit better in a, in a practice situation, then it's, it's very likely that you, you did experience choking in that context. So um, I would say those self-reflection is a big thing. And again, you know, going back to the athlete that, you know, the NFL kicker that that might have missed the field goal, uh, it is about asking them, you know, you you can only do so much speculation, at least from a outsider's point of view. And you do really have to ask the athlete. And, you know, sometimes athletes may not want to be labeled as a choker, so they might not necessarily tell you the truth. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to be and I don't even know if I want to label myself as a choker. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so that you do really have to get get an honest opinion from the person mm -hmm. that actually ex experiences it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that that's how you determine whether it was mm -hmm. an actual experience. And as you know, as a psychologist, acknowledging the problem is the first step to cure curing or preventing the problem. Yes. Um, so that, that is a, it is, that's a big thing uh, in that context. And so the third part of considerable, considerable decline in performance. So we know there's some kind of decline in performance. Um, I'm curious what you think considerable means, and then just generally tell us what you see as the impact of choking on our performance. Yeah, so considerable. Uh, again, you're you're hitting the right questions. <laughs> okay, that's now, good. Yeah, even in the research, uh, in the even in the research debate at the moment, there's no, you know, you have to decline by fifteen percent uh, of your normal standard to be able to to label it as choking, or twenty percent is enough. Well, sometimes one shot, um, one two foot putt in golf. Uh, where the person, the athlete or the golfer would have made in 199.9% of the other times that they had it, if they mm -hmm. had increased anxiety that, mm -hmm. and they missed that putt, I would label that as a choker because most of the time, okay. if you're doing it 99.9% of the time, you're very likely uh, choking because you, would have, you should have made that putt. 
um, in a in a practice situation. So, uh, yeah, considerable, I would say, depends on the situation. And that that is the, the major debate at the moment is, you know, if we're doing it in a laboratory setting, yes, we might be able to have people take 20 putts and 20% of the time, if they miss it under pressure, you know, that is a considerable choking experience. We might be able to, to debate that. But again, in the real world, you know, maybe missing two free throws in a, in, in a row in yeah. the last two seconds of the game when you, when you can win the game for your team is a, a choking experience because of that heightened anxiety. So again, it depends on the situation. And uh, yeah, it's hard to, to talk about the idea of considerable uh, yeah, what that actually means. And so, so, you know, the impact of choking, when I think about the time where I felt like I choked, and I did have this like heightened anxiety in the moment, um, maybe my focus was more on uh, like who was watching than on the task and being connected yeah. with the task. So I was a, a little distracted, or at least my my focus was misplaced. Um, yeah. And so, you know, for me, how that impacted me was definitely decline in performance it was actually when I was speaking and that's never happened to me before where I lost what I was think talking about mm -hmm. like it just mm -hmm. kind of blanked in the moment yeah. um and then the impact of that over time is you know when I think about that I think gosh I'm not you know lacking confidence and so I could see how um and that doesn't normally happen to me so it was just this one moment in time but if I keep on replaying it it could really impact me as a professional so I'm curious what do you see the maybe short-term and long-term consequences of choking just in general yeah so you're hitting everything all all of the things that you've said you're hitting all of the theoretical okay hey I'm on track <laughs> you know it is it is quite literally you know, the social anxiety, you know, sport, mm -hmm. sport is a, is a, in the context of the grand scheme of things, sport is really um, played under anxiety, social anxiety, because you're being watched all the time, right? Um, in a high pressure situation, you're being watched and uh, you're being evaluated specifically. So really, that's what you're talking about. And even in a uh, public speaking scenario, that's the same thing. You're being evaluated and you know, what are people thinking and that sort of thing. So one of my one of my theories in relation to the anxiety side of things is related to social anxiety and aspects of that. But okay. certainly the short term and long term effects. Um, we're yeah. doing some research at the moment on the mental health mm. aspects of of choking. And um, what we're finding is that, you know, asking questions about suicidality and um, uh, have you quit sport as a result of choking and those types of things. And what we find is that Overall, 10% of athletes have had suicidal thoughts as a result of uh, choking experiences. And most of those oh. are from high performance athletes. Mm -hmm. um, so those e athletes who really want to be elite level athletes and potentially professionals and those types of things. So um, again, this really affects short term and long term, it really affects some athletes. So we really need to think about these high performance athletes and even we can go into the high performance business people as well. Like yes. If they can't pub do some public speaking and they struggle right. with that, you know, what, who are they? Uh, right. Who, you know, their identity mm. is shot because they're not uh, a business person anymore. Same thing with these athletes. You know, if they, they can't perform under pressure, who are they? They're not an athlete. Who are they? Um, so again, those, those types of things. And one of the other things that's interesting is, is, uh, 13% of athletes, um, have quit sport altogether because they 
maybe they're a chronic choker or they okay. they can't perform under pressure at all. Uh, they've actually suggested in our anonymous survey that they've they've quit sport altogether because they just can't perform under pressure. So again, it's not only about you know um, performing under pressure and and the fact that people may drop out. It's also about the fact that people they're not as self compassionate. They're not as mm. compassionate for for themselves and with themselves, and they mm. tend to potentially drop out of sport or even have um, suicidal thoughts. And we don't know how many. Um, we didn't ask the question. Have you attempted? uh sure. suicide but uh certainly just the fact that they've considered it it was like oh my god are you serious like really so yeah. you really do have to to watch out for these consequences of uh not being able to perform under pressure i appreciate you saying that because you know i think that's the why we need to reduce incidents of us choking but also mm-hmm. I appreciate what you said about self-compassion and in my work with business professionals, entrepreneurs, um, athletes, I mean, w- through in my work with people, self-compassion comes up in with, in every conversation, not in every conversation, every time, but like with every single person I work with, because especially high performers, they don't, they think maybe the harder they are on themselves, the better they'll perform instead of, can you be kind and compassionate with yourself? And so, mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk a little bit about how do we reduce incidents of choking or when we choke, what's the best thing to do when we choke? How does self-compassion fit with that? And then I know we're going to dive into that a little bit more, but I'm just curious about that since you just said it. Yeah, well, I think I think you're you're hitting it again on the head. Uh, the, the idea is there's a balance, isn't there? Um, mm-hmm. You need to be driven and a high mm-hmm. performer in that context, but you also need to to allow yourself some space, allow yourself some uh, some wiggle room, some some leeway, and allow yourself to to potentially uh, have difficult times as well. So, really, uh, there is a, a bit of a um, potentially, hopefully, there's a bit of a shift in in sport generally that uh, we're looking at high performers and and focusing on. That mm-hmm. idea of um, really wanting to do well, but also if you're not doing as well, then how do you how do you deal with that? How do you um, be kind to yourself in that context? And that's really what we we want to see is that yes, you want to be driven to get to the professional level and those types of things. But what happens if you don't? Um, can you uh, deal with that? And and can you be kind to yourself in those? Uh, I don't want. I don't like to say fail, failing moments, but mm-hmm. um, you know, there's only one winner in every competition, right? So, you sure. know, I wouldn't say you're a failure if you've gotten, you know, fifth or sixth or seventh place, but certainly there's room for improvement. So, uh, we we do need to be kind to ourselves in that in that context. So I'm curious, Chris, in terms of. Um... I have a former student who uh, her business is actually called Clutch Performance. So I'm thinking about mm-hmm. what does it mean to, you know, psychologically, what's the difference when when we can feel like well, we're clutch, where we can really capitalize in the moment and perform at our best versus when we choke? What are the differences from the research and from, you know, what you've read and seen and learned more about? What are the differences psychologically when we choke versus when we're able to really be a clutch performer? Yeah, good question. Uh, in in that context, I think uh, I'll t- I'll talk about the similarities first, and then I'll talk about the differences. And that is, 
everyone is going to feel nervousness. Everyone's going to feel anxious. You might be able to, to say it's excitement uh, uh, or, uh, well, you might be able to say the heart rate increases and then that could be interpreted as excitement versus anxiety, whatever it is. Again, the interpretation of that is probably one of the biggest things in relation to clutch performance versus choking experiences. And that is the mindset of the athlete in this context, the sporting athlete uh, in that context is the biggest thing. So thinking about clutch, uh, it might be that people are uh, think, think of the, or interpret the anxiety or the heart rate increasing as um, excitement or facilitative and really helpful for their performance uh, versus unhelpful, uh, you know, as a threat or a challenge. Again, you can talk about it from a number of different positive versus negative standpoints. Having a challenge um, in in front of you in that context and uh, the clutch performer thinks of it as a challenge versus the choker thinks of it as a threat in that context. So there really is the mindset that changes um, mm. more so than anything else. Uh, but I feel like the anxiety itself or the heart rate pumping and the physiology of it sort of doesn't really change as much. It's just the fact that the mindset for that player or that athlete or that business person actually is the big difference. That's really eye-opening and really helpful, especially as people are listening to think about, are you interpreting that anxiety as facilitative or not? Or when I think about challenge versus threat, I think about when I have a challenge mindset, I'm like, okay, I'll have the resources within me to get through this. I have everything I need to get through this versus if it's a threat, I think I don't have the resources. I don't have what it takes to be successful here within me, Mm -hmm. right? Or I don't have the skills or I don't have the knowledge. Um, And so, you know, that's so helpful just to know that the anxiety is the same. It's just about yeah. how we're viewing the anxiety and if we can be clutch in that moment versus um, choke. Yeah, you feel capable, don't you? You feel confident and yeah. all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, definitely. You're you're hitting it on the head as well. You're not even a researcher. Look at that. You're you're a sports <laughs> psych. You're sports just a practitioner you know, over here. <laughs> practitioner, and you know you know most of the research already. I'm sure it's uh, having. Uh, done the sports psychology side of things and, you know, being a sports psychologist for high performance athletes and business people, I'm mm-hmm. sure that uh, all mm-hmm. helps uh, in the context, but you're on the right track. Uh, and, and I was a researcher in my former lifetime about, yeah. you know, 10 years ago before I really started doing more yes. applied work. I realized, so. <laughs> I realized that after I said it, but I, I know you that you're consulting more right now than you are yeah. Yeah. research. So that's, that's fine. Just yeah. not a research research expert in choking, but you know some no. of the ins and outs of it, so that's good. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, I'm I'm knowledgeable about this. I appreciate you <laughs> saying that. Um, my next question is: Are there certain sports or situations that we're more prone to choke in sport or outside of sport? Yeah. Um, so within a sporting context. Um, more skill-based sports, uh, such as golf or darts or uh, ten-pin bowling, or even individual uh, tasks within sports like um, tennis serving or mm. or, or uh, basketball free throw shooting, that sort of thing. Those skill-based sports uh, are more prone to choking because there's more prone to being over-analytical on those particular tasks okay. um, and thinking too much because that's where one of the 
um, theories sort of comes from, the, the idea of being analytical and uh, paralysis by analysis, if you will, uh, in that context. So um, so that sporting-wise, uh, more skill-based versus effort-based sports like athletics or sprinting and those types of things. Um, it's not that effort-based sports don't have choking. It's just the fact that it's harder to sort of determine if choking has occurred in those sports generally. Um, Situation-based, uh, uh, really, it, it does come down to, because anxiety um, is linked to how important the situation is, mm-hmm. um, the importance of the situation is really the determinant of whether anxiety actually increases even a little bit or not. So any situation that involves importance, it could be, you know, you know, we think of high pressure as, you know, 100,000 people in the crowd with camera light, you know, cameras on you and lights going and all that stuff. And you're the center of attention and that sort of thing. But people can actually experience choking just by a weekend warrior who's relatively skilled, um, you know, comes into a situation with their friend on the weekend and they think they need to win this particular, um, you know, free throw competition. And that you might you might experience choking from that um, specifically as well, because the importance of the situation increases. So okay. if you take that importance uh, of the situation to any other life event, whether it be performing arts, a surgeon uh, in mm-hmm. the ED or, uh, you know, anything like that, you, you'll you'll see that there's choking in any of those scenarios or even in what we think is not not that anxiety provoking but is is important to the person themselves a public speaking event or uh, a job interview those types of things are all linked can be all linked test anxiety you know like taking yeah. a test even though no one knows your score except for you and maybe the the teacher uh, yeah. unless you tell people um you know it, it's all it's all linked so yeah choking can be experienced in any of those scenarios I think about my 16-year-old son just took his driver's test. And, you know, I, I don't know if he experienced choking, but he definitely experienced high anxiety because yeah. that was really important. And if he didn't if he didn't pass, right, then what would people yeah. at school say? Um, yeah. I was also thinking. Did he pass? He did. He did. Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank good. goodness. <laughs> He's clutch. Very clutch. Very clutch. Very clutch. Or I was thinking about, um, I'm a keynote speaker, Chris, and uh, my sp- first speaker showcase w- was, um, and so basically this is, you know, 20 speakers have about 10 or 15 minutes each, sort of like a TED Talk style. And then all the people in the room are meeting planners. So people could hire you as, um, you know, to speak. And this is when I was just getting started. And so I remember just as I was waiting for, as I was watching everyone and waiting for my turn, a lot of thoughts on comparison, wow, I don't measure up or, man, there's so much a better speaker than I was. And that's what led to some anxiety for me. I definitely didn't perform up to my standard, you know, because of that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And mm-hmm. again, that that's just the part for the courses. And sometimes the anxiety is helpful in that in that context sometimes it you know it used to come to some of it uh but again it's all a learning experience and that's what i've i've said that in in some of my other discussions with people and that is um denise hill and others came out with a paper on uh whether choking is constructive versus destructive uh, okay. or not. 
And it's all about cool. the learning experience, isn't it? It's all about yeah. how, how you deal with it and what you learn from it. And if you can learn, um, yes. you know, about, you know, why you've experienced choking and what you're thinking and those types of things, you can certainly overcome it. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to be paralyzing for you if if you want to to learn from the experience. And I think about how that maybe relates to my experience that first uh, speaker showcase I was in, I did never want to feel like that again. So yeah. I was extra yeah. prepared and knew the mindset right. I sort of got in of comparison. So I did a lot of work, right, to crush the next one. But right, yeah. I do see that as happening for me because it helped me, you know, now do better in the other ones that allowed me to really start my speaking career. Hi, this is Sindra Kampoff, and thanks for listening to the High Performance Mindset. Did you know that the ideas we share in the show are things we actually specialize in implementing? If you want to become mentally stronger, lead your team more effectively, and get to your goals quicker, visit freementalbreakthroughcall.com to sign up for your free mental breakthrough call with one of our certified coaches. Again, that's freementalbreakthroughcall.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. Let's talk about how, because I think that's so important to really give people some tools and strategies on, okay, how can they reduce their experience choking? What can they do if they've choked? And how can instead, right, can they be clutch? And I was reading your systematic review on choking that was published in an international review of sport and exercise psychology. And you said that the most reported effective interventions were pre-performance routines, quiet eye training, left hand contractions and like different types of training. I want you to tell us about those, that finding and, and really right to help us think about how can we use this in our own lives? Yeah, that's all right. Um, before we actually uh, go into that, I, I don't, I do want to say it's not necessarily only me. Peter Groppel was the, the driver oh, sure. of this research. Yeah. So he's my co-author in that. Um, so I just wanted to sort of acknowledge him because he was the driver and he asked me to, to help out and, and we did a this great study uh, on that included forty seven published choking specific articles, um, uh, and we we identified uh, them on the basis of the two different, mainly two different theories of choking. And I just want to uh, highlight those theories before I go into those interventions, and because they were really theory, the interventions were theory matched. So what I mean by theory matched is that the theory that we had, we took interventions that linked to those theories. Um, and we used specifically, or we, we identified those uh, interventions uh, in, uh, on the, in the articles based on that. So the two theories that are really the robust theories in the choking literature are the self-focus model and the distraction model. And the distraction model basically says that um, when you have an increase in anxiety, Generally, uh, your attention changes to a distraction, whether it be an internal distraction. It could be the fact that you're feeling a bit nervous, your heart is is racing, and you're um, you're a bit distracted by that in your physiology. Or it could be an external thing, like an NFL kicker that's distracted by either the crowd or um, the uh, the um, the play the opposition players trying to block the block the kick or the field goal, those types of things. So again, when we are distracted, that uh, that that attention attention changes, and that's an issue 
within a choking experience. And it really, it is a part of anxiety. Anxiety is the reason why we, we get distracted. So the second one is self-focus model. And as I said before, paralysis by analysis, it's really about overanalyzing your technique when you're more expert experienced. So what we found, uh, what people have, are finding is that when anxiety increases, your attention shifts automatically, if, if we want to say that, to uh, thinking too much. When and in actuality, if you're an expert, you shouldn't have to think about performance movements and those types of things at all because it's relatively automatic. So gives you a context of those two models. Now, with that said, these uh, interventions, so we use pre-performance routines as an intervention to um, allow people to focus on their move, sorry, focus on the skill itself and not be distracted. So that's linked to the distraction model. And again, if you can focus on what you're doing before the shots or before the kick or whatever it is, then you are, are less distracted by other things around you when anxiety actually increases. And that, that's one of those interventions that's positive. The other three are linked to the self-focus model or that paralysis by analysis sort of model. Uh, quiet eye training is um, is when you focus your eyes on a particular um, target um, okay. for a longer period of time uh, than you would normally. And if you can fixate your eyes on a, a target, let's say you're you know hitting a golf ball and you're fixating on the dimples of the golf ball, um, if you can fixate your eyes more on that those dimples, uh, and and you can you can probably hit the shot better. In that context and that's what we're finding from that literature uh cool. left hand left hand contractions are are actually squeezing a stress ball in your left hand and that links to motor control related stuff and okay. uh and brain functioning and the fact that you're relax we'll say you're you're relaxing the uh the the right side of your brain uh, a little bit more and uh, reducing the amount of analytical brain functioning that's involved in um, performing the task when you squeeze that uh, stress ball in your left hand. And then acclimatization uh -huh. training is its own thing, and that is um, practicing with minor anxiety um, prior to a high-pressure situation. So, you know, as we were talking, maybe, you know, as an example, uh, let's say I'm I'm playing golf with a friend and we put five dollars, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a bet on who's going to win. You know, that minor uh, acclimatization or assimilation training uh, actually helps with dealing with a high pressure situation later on when you actually get into a competition. So those were the main main findings um, in that context. And they they link to the, the different theories as well. I just learned something. <laughs> no, uh, really? I did. On. I did. Don't really cool. <laughs> I learned. I was actually thinking about a golfer I work with, and wow, if he's you know walking between shots and he has like a, a squeeze ball in his left hand, how that might help him reduce his stress and anxiety. Or gosh, maybe I could do that before I speak, right? Um, so that's yeah. cool. Uh, is yeah. there any research about how long we should do that for? Yeah. So, uh, so some of our research with Peter Groffel and uh, yep. Jurgen Beckman and others, um, 
we well they they Jurgen Beckman, Felix Erlenspiel, and Peter Grappel all uh, started that research back in 2013 and and found 30 seconds was was a, a good amount of time uh, to squeeze the ball in the left hand prior to shots or prior to public speaking that sort of thing. Um, we've actually uh, reduced that down to about 10 or 15 seconds. 10 or 15 seconds before shots uh, or or throws or whatever and um, found that that's effective as well. So um, so anywhere, you know, I would say at least 10 seconds, but uh, 30 seconds. And sometimes when I'm doing public speaking as well or, or doing a presentation, I sometimes have the stress ball in my hand and I just use it for minutes, you know, like just, just to keep relaxed and keep calm and that sort of thing. And I do feel like it does actually – you know, relax me while I'm doing it. And then when I get up on stage or when I'm, you know, starting my presentation, I feel probably a little bit more relaxed than I was previously when I didn't use the stress ball. So yeah, it, it, it does, you know, it depends on the situation, but 10 seconds, you know, it's, it's good for some athletes that just have a quick um, sort of routine or a quick turnaround before shots. Yeah. Love that. I'm going to start using that. So I appreciate that. <laughs> when you're talking about the quiet eye training and you gave an example of uh, like in golf, the dimples of the ball. So let's think about, uh, let's say if you're not a golfer, how could you use that in other sports or outside of sports? And maybe how do yeah. you use that for yourself? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say outside of sports. So okay. there's some, uh, there's some research uh, to suggest that just focusing on, you know, somewhere uh, a part of the room or a, a wall or whatever just to you know or even the monitor you know some some place mm. on the monitor if you if you have a powerpoint presentation just for a few few seconds um allows you to to gather your thoughts and and focus your concentration a little bit more so if you're doing a public uh, a public speaking engagement or you're you have a job interview or whatever prior to going into the interview you might actually just you know, even even if it's just um, sort of uh, zoning out, you know, and and looking at something for a few seconds, at least you're you're focusing, concentrating on a particular point, and may allow you to relax that just a little bit more, or at least retain some thoughts and focus your mind on what you need to do going into that interview in that context. So, yeah, I think it's relevant to to anyone. Uh, if we go into surgery, like, yeah, I, same, same type of thing, um, really focusing on what you're doing and being, you know, it could be being mindful of, you know, in a surgeon's point of view, washing your hands properly, you know, that, that sort yeah. of thing, um, yes. that, that would be an example of, of going into that. And, you know, outside of the sport context might be a, a good way of doing that. Excellent. So practical and helpful. Um, yes. And I like the way that you're describing these really complex ideas into really simple ways that we could actually use it. Are there any other suggestions you might give to people um, to reduce experiences with choking? Um, in in that particular study, that review, we also uh, found that in some situations, dual tasks actually help. Uh, again, self-focus related uh, or choking related as a self-focus model. Um, 
we we found uh, one of our my studies found that music actually as a dual task is very beneficial. Uh, we don't know why yet because no studies have followed up my original study um, about why um, music actually does have a beneficial effect on at least sport performance. But I would say in the context of other things outside of sport, using music mm -hmm. as a way to relax you uh, before a high pressure situation, such as going into surgery or, yeah, you know, you see some of these shows that surgeons are actually listening to music while they, while I they're know. actually in surgery, like, yeah. you know, uh, maybe yeah. that's a relaxing effect. So yeah, I, I believe, you know, music does have an effect on either, you know, getting your mind away from if you need to do intricate um, movements in a particular sport or surgery, that sort of thing. It gets you away from thinking about those things and you're, you're more likely to be automatic in your movements in that context. So yeah, it's very, I would say dual task, dual task came from the idea that you, you count backwards from, uh, from a thousand by seven or threes and okay. distract yourself in that context as well. So, um, yeah, but music idea is more practical. Uh, it's, it's more relevant rather than sort of, you know, if you tell an athlete, can you, you know, while you're, you know, throwing this free throw, I want you to count backwards from a hundred. <laughs> yeah, I'd be seven. like, oh man, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be distract. Why would you want me to do that? And you have to really explain, you know, it is for your own benefit. If you, if you're analytical and you mm. count backwards uh, and in your own head or out loud, then you're less likely to, Think about, and we call it reinvestment or reinvest. Think about your uh, the the rules of the skill on how to actually do the free throw, and the 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 actual skill itself. So uh, you really have to convince some of these. And I, and I'll do say I will say that with these interventions, some of these you will have to convince people that it's going to be beneficial. Like you know, the dual task. You know, it sounds counterproductive, but it's actually beneficial. Left hand ball squeezing is the same. Um, why would you, you know, why would why would I want to do that? Like I don't see any point in in actually doing it. But you have to explain it to the athlete a little bit more, and they'll get their buy in. Absolutely, absolutely. I was also reading um, your. 2021 study published in the Journal of Applied Sports Psychology, and it was titled Irrational Beliefs and Choking Under Pressure. So that's something we haven't really talked too much about is like our beliefs and how they might lead to pressure. Tell us what you found in that study and um, how we might be able to apply it to our own lives. Yeah, so in that study, irrational beliefs in that study kind of were defined as um, rigid rigid thoughts okay mm -hmm. um so okay. in that context it's about uh saying things that that can't be changed or those thoughts that may not necessarily be flexible so uh irrational beliefs might be something like i need and that word need i need to to make this putt to win okay. uh, or i need to hit this home run mm. to to uh to be successful in this uh baseball game um, so need or must or have to, like they are all, re there's no, there's no flexibility in that. There's no okay. going back from that particular belief or that comment. So, um, that, that's the first, first idea. And basically we, um, we ask people to fill fill out an irrational performance beliefs inventory or questionnaire. 
And we've got a number uh, on how high or low they are on their irrational beliefs related to that. And we, we looked at um, individuals in a low and a high pressure situation. In this case, it was Australian football. Uh, many uh, U.S. listeners may not necessarily know what Australian football is, but basically, um, if you take a field goal in in NFL, um, uh, it's you know you try to ha- you have to kick a ball through a particular goal, and a set shot is kind of the same same thing, but you have it in your hand and you hands and you actually it's like a punt, but you kick it through the goal instead. Um, and we we had individuals in a low and a high pressure situation in that Australian set shot situation and what we found was that um as irrational beliefs actually increased uh, especially for chokers specifically those people that experience choking in a low pressure situation irrational beliefs were actually good they're okay okay no no big deal the the performance actually increased again i want to emphasize these were chokers we separated these individuals uh, a little bit more after a further analysis we the chokers were people that actually had a considerable decrease in performance in the high pressure situation so these people were um the 15 percent or higher of a decrease in performance rather than just a you know five percent or an underperformance type of thing so um and we found that they were good okay they were okay in the low pressure situation as their irrational base increased generally they tended to increase performance. But in the high pressure, hmm. if they had ir- higher irrational beliefs, okay. they tended to decrease performance. That's when it hurt them the most. Okay. We don't know why. Again, this was a, uh, a an initial investigation to, to this irrational beliefs idea. We don't know why this is the case. But uh, again, it, it says, it really does says something, say something to the point that you know, if I say I must make this putt or I must kick this set shot in Australian football, then it really does have an effect on your high pressure situation and also your low pressure situation as well. Because if you go into practice and you're kicking, you know, with this mindset, you're kicking great. What will happen in the high pressure situation if these results are accurate? Uh, which is really interesting because if you still have those uh, that irrational belief, those irrational beliefs in the high pressure situation, then you might stuff up. You might mess up in that particular high pressure situation. But it won't, you won't know it in the practice situation because they're good for you in that context. Mm, that's so helpful. And the practical point that I could make for myself and for those people I work with and everyone's listening is like noticing when you have these irrational, really rigid thoughts of I need to, I must, I have to, if I don't, you know, like extreme type of thinking and particularly in pressure moments, we want to just notice those. And what I would say is um, first step is always noticing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that's the thing, uh, you know, seek out a sports psychologist or talk to Syndra, especially about uh, how how you're uh, how you're considering uh, the the thoughts that you have. And again, notice what happens in a high pressure situation if you are performing worse under pressure uh, mm-hmm. and in a high pressure situation. Mm-hmm. Notice what you're thinking in that context and, mm-hmm. and say, look, uh, I'm OK when it's there's not much pressure if. If you say I must or I have to and that, those types of things, does that help you in a high pressure situation? Do you feel like you're more anxious 
in that high pressure situation and maybe test it. Maybe say, uh, you know, in, in one game, you might, you know, follow through the with those I must or I have to. But if it's not working, change your thoughts to, you know, it it's I, I might or I could or I, uh, you know, uh, those those less rigid thoughts yes. in relation to um, the high pressure situation. So, uh, you know, one way of doing that is just changing those the, the one or two words that are rigid from from I must to I would like to. Uh, I would like to make this putt. Um, but if it, you know, but if I don't, you know, and then continue the sentence. But if I don't, everything's going to be fine. Everything's good. It's no big deal. That sort of thing. Yeah. So helpful and practical. All right. My last question is, are there personality differences that lead us to choking versus being able to be clutch? Yep. And I'm going to say, because I'm a qualitative researcher as well, I'm going to say yes. Awesome. And then I'll, I'll continue. I'll continue that, um, and and uh, and uh, continue that by saying, um, social anxiety, as I said before, is a is a big thing um, in relation to these issues. Uh, so athletes who have experienced or generally experience higher social anxiety when they're in a um, attention demanding situation. Uh, then they're going to be more prone to experiencing choking more than others. Now, with that said, personality types or personality characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a PhD student at the moment okay. who's doing uh, a study uh, on personality characteristics in choking. And cool. we've found about 10 personality characteristics that uh, have links to uh, more choking susceptible those people right. that might be susceptible to choking uh, or decreased performance under pressure um, than, than others. So I'll just give you a few of them because I won't go into the details of all of them because I might need to define a little bit a couple of them. But sure. um, the, the more prone athletes um, may have things like higher self-consciousness. Um, so they uh, they. They think about what people are thinking about them um, before they plan or before they actually perform skills. And they're a bit more self-conscious. Most people would probably know what self-conscious is. Um, They have higher trade anxiety, so social anxiety, if you will. uh, But trade anxiety is the predisposition to be anxious. So in that situation, it leads to higher situational anxiety as well. Um, I would say another one is higher perfectionism. Um, the more perfectionistic you are, the more you want to, to be perfect in all of your movements, the more likely you experience choking because you go into that self-focus, that paralysis by analysis side of things. And then also that high reinvestment as well. That's another personality characteristic. You, you tend to think about the movement more when you're in high-pressure situations and you reinvest. You think about the the facts of the skill the rules of the skill rather than actually allowing your body to to do it itself and allow your brain the most powerful uh computer in the world if you will uh to do its job uh rather than again you override that system so that's that's another one so i'll, I'll leave it there um, we can kind of go into ideas of irrational beliefs and those types of things but those are probably the most uh widely known and the most 
um, researched uh, in the context of choking at the moment. Dr. Chris, this has been so helpful and practical and useful. And I love how you took really complex ideas and put them into things that we could actually use. Um, I'm going to do my best to summarize everything we've talked about. We'll see how I do. <laughs> uh, three components of choking. Um, there needs to be high anxiety, typically skilled performance, and some kind of decline in performance. We talked about, is it a considerable decline or what that looks like? We were talking about uh, the difference between clutch performance, choking performance, 10% of... Um, we are talking about like suicidal thoughts when they have a clutch athletes, when they have a, not a clutch performance, but a, a choking performance. And that's the reason I think we want to help athletes and just, uh, you know, non-athletes be able to deal with choking experiences. We talked about self-compassion. We talked about various different interventions like pre-performance routines, quiet eye training, um, left-hand contraction. Uh, that's what I didn't realize. And then we talked about the different theories of choking and the personality types that might lead to more being choking susceptible. So what a fun, outstanding interview. Thanks so much for being here and just really helping us all think about how we can use this research that you've been um, studying. How could people reach out to you and learn more about what you do? Um, yeah, so firstly, thanks very much for having me on a, such an amazing podcast, Indra. I'm, I'm, I've looked at and listened to some of the podcasts already and the amazing people that you have on here. I'm just a pleasure and, and I feel so um, so appreciative of you inviting me into the, into the program. Thanks very much. Um, people can uh, follow me on Twitter or X as they call it now. Yes. Um, uh, on C. uh uh, on the Twitter handle, and uh, you can also find me uh, on the Victoria University website. Just Google my name, Chris Masano, at Victoria University, and you can find me there. And the email my email address is there if you if you want to contact me at all. Excellent. What final advice or thoughts do you have for people who are listening today? So my final final thoughts in relation to choking, specifically in high performers, is probably um, everyone. If, even if they don't don't say it, uh, most people, I would say 90% of people experience anxiety in sports and potentially lead that potentially leads to choking or at least underperformance. You can learn from it and you can it can be constructive. And the main thing I would say is irrespective of whether you perform well or uh, uh, not so well under pressure, uh, be kind to yourself. Uh, when experiencing high performance situations uh, and ensure that uh, you take care of yourself uh, generally. That's beautiful. Thank you for crushing it here on the high performance mindset. We're grateful that you're here. Thanks very much, Cinda. Way to go for finishing another episode of the high performance mindset. I'm giving you a virtual fist pump. Holy cow, did that go by way too fast for anyone else? If you want more, remember to subscribe and you can head over to Dr. Sindra for show notes and to join my exclusive community for high performers where you get access to videos about mindset each week. So again, you can head over to Dr. Sindra, that's D-R-C-I-N-D-R-A dot com. See you next week.